popular discourse about like our lack of privacy is like, oh, Google makes it so hard to turn off location tracking because they just want to serve us ads. And it's like, yeah, they definitely do want to make money, but it's also more than that. Yeah. It's more than just serving you targeted ads. Again, this is why it kind of makes sense that Google is blocked in China. Not because China fucking hates freedom, which is just like a vague, that idea really only works on Americans, but probably because the Chinese government understands that Google is effectively one of the many arms of the US intelligence apparatus. Again, it's not the only one. I mean, you have Amazon being paid $600 million by the CIA to develop software, but it is an arm of the intelligence apparatus. And even though many other corporations also have deep relationships with the federal government, the relationship with Google is pretty special and pretty interesting. Do you want this? I have a, someone left this at my house. It's weed? I think it's so. It's a jewel. It's a jewel, yeah. And then I also have this. I collect Which is it. tobacco. Fuck yeah. <laughs> Happy birthday. Welcome back to Cargo Cult Friends. Welcome, I'm Michelle Greenstein. And I'm Naomi Caravani, and we're gonna talk about the roots of Google that may or may not be connected to certain intelligence operations in the United States. It's part two on our InQtel series. There's a lot of companies that have interesting connections to the CIA and its venture capital arm. And the one we're gonna be talking about today is called Google. InQtel is the venture capital arm of the CIA. They invest in startups who are making technology that aligns with the mission needs of the CIA and the rest of the intelligence community. Google is probably InQtel's biggest success story. Like when InQtel goes to parties and people are like, what do you do? They're like, oh, um, I helped make Google because Google is a household name. But yeah, um, we're doing this at a special time when the CIA is celebrating pride, you mm. know, the LGBTQ CIA, yeah. that's a full acronym. I will assassinate, I will torture, I will coup, I will do illegal spying, including of US civilians, but I draw the line at bigotry. Yes, that's where we draw the line. Google is not just a search engine, but it's kind of become the search engine, right? We we even uh, made Google into a verb, right? No one says, oh, I'm gonna do a web search on this. We say we're gonna Google it, except maybe if you're in China. But by the end of this episode, you may understand why Google is blocked in China. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they have, you know, a similar search. It, it, you can search the web there. Right, they but you don't use a... the word Google yeah. to say, I'm gonna search something. That immediately puts you on a list. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, if you like, the CIA's work, you're gonna love uh, this episode. You're gonna love hearing about all the fun stuff Google is doing. And if you do not fuck with the CIA, you will be very disappointed to hear. The Central Intelligence Agency created in 1940 by the National Security Act, um, they really got to work right away. As soon as the CIA was created, they immediately started interfering with foreign government politics. Basically, I mean, the list goes on and on, but the basic mission of the CIA in the beginning at least, and, and ostensibly now it's just freedom and democracy, but still probably is, was to stop the spread of global communism. Coups, torture, assassinations, Yeah, Guatemala, they tried Cuba. They conducted a ton of illegal spying, including on US citizens. And a lot of this um, behavior was exposed by the Church Committee in the Senate and the mm -hmm. Pike Committee in the House. And then after that, you kind of saw some new forms of oversight take place over the CIA. But also responsibility was kind of um, diffused into diffused. different intelligence agencies. So there was like 18 intelligence agencies. Right. I mentioned this in the last episode, but when InQtel is asked, are you the venture capital arm of the CIA? Mm -hmm. They're like, no. And it's we like a gotcha. We work with all intelligence yeah. agencies. It's like, actually, we work with all. And but I've said it before and I've said it, I'll say it again. Like it's an open secret that the CIA is the top dog in the intelligence community, even though technically they're one of many agencies. And you know what? We'll probably never know the full extent of CIA operations. Like that is the whole point of the agency is covert operations. But we do know a little bit, right? And I think another important part of this story is the fact that even though so that diffusion took place after the church committee and the Pike committee, um, and we had you know new oversight by Congress or whatever, a lot of that started to fade after 9-11. So now we're in kind of an era mm -hmm. where that power has uh, re-broadened yes, exactly. a little bit. Broke and now back. they're like, yeah, just uh, tell us whichever neighbor you're suspicious of, <laughs> we will investigate. 
So this episode. And my father was one of them after oh, 9 11. Oh, yeah, my God, he was yeah. investigated after 9 11. And it's being like, brown. which neighbor like ratted out that there was a brown, a brown guy next door? <laughs> Sometimes you'll see right wingers talk about how like draconian policies are coming. Like, you know, just get ready. We're going to live in a police state soon. And it's like, this has been here. Like, if you were brown, like in the age after 9-11, like you already lived under that draconian police state. Sometimes you were jailed um, for no reason. Sometimes you were literally sent to an offshore torture facility in Cuba. Yeah, and of the like a thousand detainees they had after 9-11, none of them led to any information. But to be fair, my dad is a pretty suspicious looking guy. <laughs> Full of He's like a cha- chain smoking cigarettes. He's uh, he's like the cartoon. <laughs> he, yeah, he's the cartoon version of a terrorist. And like right before um, he, you know, was tipped off to the uh, some neighbor tipped the FBI that there was a s- suspicious brown guy living next door. Um, he like had a window removed from his home. He really? like put plastered over a window. Honey. And I'm like, Dad, why did you get yeah. rid of a window? And he's like, the reflection on the TV. And I'm like, Dad, oh. why didn't you move the TV? And he Honey. looked at me like I was I had three heads. <laughs> And it's like, if you think about it, that is like the first renovation that terrorists would do (laughs) when they like move into Al Qaeda comes in. They're like, way too many windows. We have to get rid of them. (laughs) Let's get into it. Google. Let's fucking do it. $282.8 billion in revenue in 2022. It's parent company Alphabet, one of the highest valued companies on earth. Through Gmail, Google has access to most of the world's emails. Um, and then also Google has access to a large set segment of general internet traffic, like a large segment of internet traffic goes through Google servers. So as journalist and author Yasha Levine put it, the company is not just connected to the internet, it is the internet. 1990s. You have Alta Vista. You have Yahoo. I was Michelle Belly Boom Boom at Yahoo.com. I was like <laughs> graffiti 19. I, th- I just thought graffiti was like a cool word. The internet before Google. Imagine a world wide web where all the searches were based on keywords. So you would search, say, something like broccoli, and the page that would come up the first would probably be the page that mentions broccoli the most and where broccoli is the most important. But anyways, 1990s, these two Stanford whiz kids, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. They start on this web crawling application that crawls the web and then ranks pages. Basically, as the internet is starting to take off, they decide, or they are told, who knows, but they start working on a way to make all the stuff that's on the web easy to access and easy to analyze. And already you can kind of see how an intelligence agency would want that kind of tool as well. You want to be able to access everything that's out there and analyze it. Official story is that what makes them genius boys is they went to Montessori schools and that's a, you know, that's a school where kids can like kind of guide their own lessons and kind of do whatever they want. Part of the official story is that they like didn't like each other. They butted heads and, and then, but later they became, uh, had this symbiotic relationship and they were just two geniuses in a vacuum that, or not a vacuum, but in a garage that created this amazing search engine that we use today. And yeah, that's the official story. But what's left out is that the research at Stanford was actually funded by the NSA and the CIA. And Sergey Brin even reported on his progress to people at the CIA Office of Research and Development, to people who had no role at Stanford, right? No role in the actual university. That was Rick Steinheiser that Brin reported to. Bhavani Theresingham? Right. Bhavani Theresingham. This phenomenon that of That is the an approximation of the pronunciation. <laughs> Bhavani and Rick. We don't even need to go into last names. 
So yeah, it wasn't super uncommon for the intelligence community to be injecting money into university research like this. But completely left out of the official story of Google's founding is the fact that the co-founder was literally reporting to the intelligence community on his progress while they were developing Google's main search rank algorithm. What is included in the official story is the Digital Libraries Grant, which was a DARPA grant that was given to a lot of elite universities. Basically, the government wanted help organizing academic information, like how can we uh, you know, search journal articles very quickly. But also another grant that was received and the grant that was part of the intelligence community was the MDDS grant or Massive Digital Data Systems. And so this was the problem in the 90s. Like there's too much data. They How do we organize it? How do we search it? But also how do we keep it secret? How can we prevent data breaches? That's what they were worried about at this point in time. And so they would visit universities and kind of see the progress. And Bhavani, um, I'm not going to even try to say the last name anymore, but Bhavani, uh, this nice Indian woman who worked for the CIA, would get presentations from Sergey Brin, who would like ride in on roller skates or sorry, roller blades and give his PowerPoint and then like skate on out of there. <laughs> and the interesting thing is like Bhavani uh, after Nafiz Ahmed put out this article linking the CIA to um, the very beginnings of Google, uh, Bhavani was interviewed by Nafiz Ahmed and later said that he misconstrued her uh, information and that the CIA was not part of this operation. The CIA didn't fund Google. It funded Stanford. But they obviously did have a role in nurturing the very beginnings of this. Right, I mean, the CIA funded Stanford, but not just funded the university's auditorium or their lunches, they funded this research, which led to the formation of Google. So it's kind of like um, semantics. Yeah, you weren't writing checks to these two kids on rollerblades. Yeah, you weren't funding their textbooks, like you were funding their research. Yeah, they knew what they would do with that money. They yeah. would just go to Burning Man, which yeah, Sergey <laughs> Sergey Brin was like such a big fan of Burning Man. He was a big Burning Man fan. You could tell, you know, he was Google's founding playboy mm. and had a lot of relationships with the employees. Uh, apparently there weren't locks on the doors in Google's early days oh. and like other before they moved on to the open floor plan with no yeah. doors <laughs> no doors so yeah they went from like walking in on sergey brin having sex with employees <laughs> to just seeing it, seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> i love the open office plan i mean google was like a famously sexist workplace mm. but besides you know having rampant sexual harassment and like mm. sergey brin like uh you know picking his lovers from his staff you also had like pay disparities. And at one point uh, there was like a government investigation into the pay, the the wage gaps at Google. And, um, and then Google like said, it, it would just be too much, too expensive to give you the data, to look for the data of salaries of females at the company. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, this is just data we can't manage. Um, <laughs> we are busy like working on every citizen's data that we cannot yeah. <laughs> go into the females who work here. I mean, come on. So Bryn was kind of a playboy? He was kind of a playboy. So not only were they not working out of garage, they were working out of the house of this woman and her sister, Anna Wojcicki, who would later go on and found 23andMe, married Sergey Bryn in 2007. And but later... Uh, in 2013, they separated because Sergey Brin was having an affair with a amateur comedian and head of Google Glass, Amanda Rosenberg, mm. a Chinese slash mm. British woman. Um, yeah, those half Asian women can't trust him. Also Jewish. <laughs> it was very important that Sergey Brin announce his separation to his wife, Anna Wojcicki, head of 23andMe because he had to go to Burning Man with Amanda Rosenberg. So he didn't want to show up at Burning Man and everybody be confused. Is that <laughs> true was, or is like, that just a joke? It's a no, that's oh. true. Like, so he announced it and then was seen at Burning Man with Anna? With uh, Amanda Rosenberg. Amanda. Chinese Brit. She calls herself a Chew. Chinese Jew. Oh. Oh. <laughs> 
Amanda Rosenberg is just now a TV writer, <laughs> has written for Netflix. Basically, she has my job. What did she write? Anything we would know? She did a web series that was like, I'm stuck in my apartment and I don't like to go out and it's annoying to put clothes on and that kind of shit. Um, and it was like a little bit of roommate drama, that kind of stuff. I watched Wait, it. so, okay, so how many wives did Sergey Brin have? Uh, he has an, another wife now. Her name is... Nicole Shanahan? Nicole Shanahan. So, Nicole Shanahan, um, there were rumors that she and Elon Musk were having an affair, but apparently, they like, they both deny it. Um, and they probably weren't, but I think they were seen together at a party. Yeah. And then there were, like, rumors that Elon Musk was sleeping with Sergey Brin's wife. Well, and Elon tweeted, haven't had sex in ages, sigh. Sergey and I are friends and we're at a party together last night. Oh, damn. <laughs> like, he had to add his, like, weird incel comment. They might be poly and have orgies. You never know. But she was the head of Google Glass, which, yeah. of course, Yeah, there are a lot of photos of her wearing yeah. Google Glass. And, but this was, like, a pattern, Sergey Brin. You're was... talking about Amanda, head of Google Glass. Yeah. Not Nicole. Not yeah. Nicole. Not Nicole. Nicole is the current wife. Maybe she's sleeping with Elon. I don't know. I don't know. Apparently, the Wall Street Journal reported that Musk was involved in a, quote, brief affair with Nicole. Mm. Um, but that's according Wall to Wall Street Journal. Yeah. Oh my God, I didn't know they were getting into gossip. <laughs> they're like, nobody's gonna read the paper these days if we don't yeah. cover this. <laughs> yeah, they're basically the New York Post now. But I guess yeah, when you're talking about Elon Musk, the richest man in the world, and then Sergey Brin, who's like I think seventh or eighth, they're like, this is financial news, not gossip. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the Silicon Valley reporter must be so busy going from orgy to orgy each night, <laughs> taking notes on who's fucking who. Like I haven't like, fucking <laughs> slept in weeks. There's there was a human centipede last night. I'm gonna have to. Not going to be able to answer my emails today. Shout out to Tom Wamsgans, who did not sleep for a week straight and still ended up on top in succession. Yeah, Wamsgams will be hailed as a hero of yeah. our time. He gave us the representation we need, which is people who pull all-nighters. So Larry Page and Sergey Brin developed this page ranking system. So they're not totally in a vacuum or a garage. They're in the bedrooms of this woman's apartment with some stolen Stanford computers. <laughs> and yeah, they basically like would intercept the delivery trucks and like take <laughs> computers. And it's like, wow, these guys just were real entrepreneurs. And um, so their paint drinking system basically worked in a way where they would value a page higher if it linked to more pages. So like, in the case of journal articles, like a journal article would be better and more important mm -hmm. and show up higher in search results if it was cited in more papers. Right. You can go look up like what the page rank formula was. If you don't understand math, here's how you would understand it. Um, it's one minus a damping factor plus <laughs> for every link into the page except for links to the page itself. Add the page rank of that page divided by the number of outbound links on the page and reduced by the damping factor. So it looks like W little i equals open parentheses one minus D close parentheses plus D. <laughs> it's a just I a think, straightforward formula. I think um, I explained <laughs> it fine. I don't know why we went into the formula. I just but, wanted to be funny. Okay. Well, I'm glad we got the formula out there for all the mathematicians listening. We'll get P-R-A-1-D-D-D-P-R-T-1 slash C, open parentheses, T1, close parentheses, plus. All right, I'm cutting you off. But this page ranking system didn't come out of nowhere. There was also another guy, Ryan Lee, who worked on a page ranking system and was cited in Larry Page's research. Mm -hmm. And he would go on to make the Chinese version of Google Baidu. By the way, PageRank, obviously named a little bit after the idea of a web page, but also kind of named after Larry Page. Yeah. And Sergey Brin <laughs> and Larry Page, they both come from like academic families, like their parents were mm. mathematicians or uh, computer scientists. A lot of, what's the word? Advantages. So the page ranking system was nicknamed Backrub, which I guess would foreshadow the massage table <laughs> in Sergey Brin's <laughs> office <laughs> where he would have sex with Amanda Rosenberg. I'm not kidding. That was 
the, the, the nickname name. of back rub and yeah page rank was the algorithm and then in 97 sean anderson another computer scientist who was working with larry page and Sergey Brin came up with the word googleplex but he was like a dyslexic guy or something and just misspelled google the correct spelling is g-o-o-g-o-l which stands for 10 to the hundredth power like one with 100 zeros another name that was kicked around was what box mm-hmm. but they were worried it sounded a little bit like wet box that's a little sexual yeah and it's like people are obviously that. coming here to look for that we yeah. can't be so <laughs> on the nose <laughs> on the nose with that so yeah they i guess went with back rub <laughs> so larry page and Sergey bren were famously condescending rude computer scientists who when they were faced with investors would you know talk down to them and yeah. be like you want us and yeah they you guys don't get it we were created by the cia like <laughs> yeah. we're gonna be doing this with or without you so yeah. get the fuck on board or kill yourselves yeah but finally in 1998 they get an investment from andy bechtelsheim who was the founder uh, co-founder of some microsystems Yes, which is like, this is kind of just a flashpoint to show like how much of a musical chair system this whole big tech world, especially in the early 2000s was like Sun Microsystems was the company we talked about in the earlier episode that Oracle bought, which like allowed it to become like the giant that it is. And that was the uh, acquisition that the European Commission first didn't want to approve. But we know from WikiLeaks cables that the US pressured the EU to approve it, which it did. Yeah, so they get their first $100,000 and then immediately go to Burning Man to celebrate and they put the Burning Man logo on the Google web homepage. It was like the first Google doodle. They're like, we're yeah. off to the <laughs> desert to, you know, dance around half naked and hula hoop. And then Google launched AdWords in 2000 where they allow advertisers to bid on keywords. Mm-hmm. To So this is them basically allowing anyone with a web page to show up sooner by paying for it. So it wasn't just the pure page rank algorithm anymore. Now they're monetizing it so that you can pay to rank higher in search. And in, interestingly, in 1995, Sergey Brin writes an article that's like, um, if web searches were ever to be monetized by advertisers, it would corrupt so- search results and you wouldn't have you wouldn't have easy access to the most important information. Yeah. Um, but... It's one thing to write a paper in 1995. It's another thing to literally have the opportunity to make all of that money right in front of you and then keep your principles the same. So they have tons of money. And by 2001, investors are losing patience and they want to get an adult in the room. Like they're tired of these Burning Man fans (laughs) bouncing around on balls and fucking on massage tables. Uh, Sequoia Capital basically, basically threatens them. They're like, we're going to pull our 12 million. So Sergey Brand and Larry Page go to Burning Man to look for a CEO. They get a yeah, exactly. <laughs> they like, find their CEO in 2001 from literally Burning Man. And they're like, look, this old guy can juggle fire. So <laughs> he's going to be our CEO. But Eric Schmidt was chosen in 2001 basically because he was an uh, an old dude who went to Burning Man yeah. and also he was CEO of Novell and Sun Microsystems worked there and he uh you know as soon as he joins Google he installs a uh you know children's playground slide to exit his office with also in 2001 um after they name eric schmidt as ceo larry and sergey go and do their first ever interview on tv with charlie rose let's take a listen currently google handles over 100 million search requests every day the wall street journal has called google everything a search engine should be thorough smart speedy and honest I'm pleased to welcome to this table for the very first time those two founders of this company. Um, let me just start with the... Sounds like you forgot their name just <laughs> now. I'm pleased yeah, to welcome for the very first time those two guys. Idea. What happened? Tell me one more time because Google is... Google is Google. Well... Prep for this interview, yeah. guys. Google is Google. So we didn't even intend to build a search engine. We just sort of fell into it. Yeah. And we 
started downloading everything on the web and we started um, doing interesting research on it. And eventually, uh, we actually started a company. We finally, we finally broke down and said, oh, we're not quite going to finish our PhDs right away. We're going to start a company to get this thing out into yeah. the world. T tell us about the name Google. Um, Google comes from the number Google. However, it was coined before we had the Google spell check feature. In fact, the number is spelled G-O-O-G-O-L, but the company is G-O-O-G-L-E. As Google is, is growing and developing, we have another company called Keyhole. And so Keyhole comes from a video game company called Intrinsic Graphics that operated in the late 90s, um, created uh, 3D gaming software libraries that allowed you to spin a globe and then zoom in on a certain part. So they were uh, basically developing mapping technologies. Later, Intrinsic Graphics decided that they wanted to concentrate on video games, whereas part of the company wanted to create a more commercially successful thing that could be applied to many uses like real estate, urban planning, and of course, defense and intelligence. So they created a product called the Keyhole Earth Viewer, which was basically CDs that they could sell to real estate firms and defense firms, etc. Right. And that division of the company becomes Keyhole Inc., which is not about video games at all. And Incutel gives money to that division in 2003, um, along with the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, whose job it is to provide the intelligence community and the Pentagon, so the CIA and the Pentagon, with satellite-based intelligence, and they wanted to know the Earth. In fact, the motto of the NGA was, know the Earth. The know CIA, the Earth, step one, know the Earth. Yeah. Step two, destroy the Earth. <laughs> Who, what, why, when, where? At the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, the answers to these questions form the foundation of our mission. Everything on Earth from its watery depths to its highest peaks can be measured in space and time. NGA is a unique combination of intelligence agency and combat support agency. So after the CIA, um, or after InQtel rather, gives money to Keyhole in 2003, the CIA customizes the Keyhole product to meet the CIA's needs and the NGA's needs. And according to journalist Yasha Levine, quote, months after InQtel's investment, Keyhole software was already integrated into operational service and deployed to support US troops during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Intelligence officials were impressed with the video game-like simplicity of its virtual maps. They also appreciated the ability to layer visual information over the intelligence. So you could see why an intelligence agency would love a product like this. Now it's almost like, of course, the CIA has a product like this. But back then it was groundbreaking technology to have this kind of digital map and then to layer over intelligence like troop movements, what weapons are where, real time weather conditions. Um, you have mobile phone data of people that you're tracking um, and you can layer all of that over the map. So you have this like great bird's eye view of what's going on in whatever country we're trying to invade at the moment. Um, even information like intercepted emails, like you could layer over that data over the map. So you could be like, oh, this is Naomi's house. And she talked to Dino yesterday. Callback. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she talked to Dino yesterday and they mentioned this weapon in their email exchange. Like, I don't like this hypothetical <laughs> example where I get bombed. <laughs> but yeah, so they helped... Keyhole helped direct the Iraqi invasion in 2003, and then soon Keyhole gets the attention of a small company called Google. So Google buys Keyhole in 2004, and by buying Keyhole, they're also buying this relationship with CIA personnel. Here's another quote from Yasha Levine. When Google bought Keyhole, it also acquired an InQtel executive named Rob Painter, who came with deep connections to the world of intelligence and military contracting, including U.S. special operations, the CIA and major defense firms, among them Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, and Lockheed Martin. At Google, Painter was planted in a new dedicated sales and lobbying division called Google Federal, located in Reston, Virginia, a short drive from CIA headquarters. His job was to help Google grab a slice of the lucrative military intelligence contracting market. Google Federal, which was created in 2006, had so many NSA staff on it that they literally nicknamed it NSA West. Yeah, and at some point, Google like sued the government because they were mad that Microsoft got contracts that they thought they were entitled to. 
So we can see how this relationship between Google and the state continued, right? It wasn't just, you know, the, the beginning money for Keyhole, or it wasn't just the original research at Stanford. This relationship really continues. In 2007, Google and Lockheed Martin partnered to make an intelligence system for the NGA that basically displayed U.S. military bases in Iraq. In 2008, Google got a contract to run the servers and search technology that powers the CIA's Intellipedia, which is basically their version of Wikipedia. It's like an intelligence database literally modeled after Wikipedia. This is something that's collaboratively edited by Intel employees. Yeah, imagine how many times Dulles's Intellipedia was edited. Was edited by. But yeah, this is obviously only accessible if you have intelligence community credentials. And so we cannot see Intellipedia, but we do kind of have an idea of what it might look like because at one point I think someone FOIA'd a page about the Vatican. So we got to see like the layout of the website and it does basically look like Wikipedia. So more on the relationship between Google and the state. Google's logo was on the launch rocket of a private spy satellite called GOI, which was launched in partnership with the NGA in 2008. Google got exclusive use of that data for its online mapping. So in 2010, Google got $27 million to provide the NGA with geospatial visualization services, basically making, as Yasha Levine put it, Google the eyes of America's defense and intelligence apparatus. Also in 2010, the NSA and Google enter into this information exchange partnership where the Google, where the Google, where Google is providing the NSA with all of its traffic data. Um, then in 2011, we see this relationship grow even more. You have the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which is the U.S. agency that is tasked with researching weather and the environment. Uh, they started using Google in 2011. I wonder if they have any balloons. Probably. I don't know. Let's see. National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration. NOAA, Federal Agency Focus on the Conditions of the Oceans and the Atmosphere. Uh-oh, Libtard Agency. Yeah. <laughs> it's an agency of the U.S. Department of Commerce. Budget of $6.1 billion in 2022. Okay, so kind of a mid-tier government agency. What I wonder about Google Weather is like, why are they always wrong? Are the they? precipitation, they always get the precipitation wrong. Weather.com is different. So when I'm looking up weather, I'm always like, are you trying to manipulate me? Are you in the pocket of the raincoat industry? No, but I just looked it up and it looks like a lot of people share your frustration. Google weather, completely inaccurate. So frustrating. I'm about to jump on the wagon with all those other people who are erasing Google from their lives. Google is going to down. I just had a thought and you fact-checked it. So this moves on to, <laughs> but I think this moves on nicely to how we're going to talk about how Google might be trying to manipulate us. So it's not necessarily that we're getting the information totally based on the algorithm that would, would give, you know, the most important information to us or the most relevant information, but maybe the information that's going to make us behave in a certain way or vote for a certain person or not vote for a certain person or buy a certain product right. like umbrellas. So according to documents that were published by WikiLeaks in 2012, Jared Cohen was running around. Not mu not as much as Sergey Brin. Oh, <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? Because he was Running skating? Around. That's like another word for cheating. Huh? Oh, Your true, wife? true. I thought it was a reference to his rollerblades. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Jared Cohen, according to Julian Assange, or not really, according to documents published by WikiLeaks, but then explained by Julian Assange, um, Jared Cohen was, quote, off running secret missions to the edge of Iran in Azerbaijan. So Azerbaijan, you know, country that borders Iran. Cohen used to work for the State Department. He was a close advisor to Hillary Clinton, friend of the pod, Condoleezza Rice, great friend of the pod. Um, and But since 2010, he was director of Google Ideas, which was basically Google's like in-house think tank. Mm -hmm. Or Jigsaw. And I think what's interesting is- Yeah, Jared, they rebranded so, as Jigsaw. Uh, Jared Cohen and his wife, is working for the State Department at the time mm -hmm. that he goes to meet with Eric Schmidt. He goes to meet Julian Assange, who's under house arrest right. in 2011 in the UK, which is like, 
oh, we're not supposed to think Julian Assange is a serious journalist. We're not supposed mm-hmm. to talk to him or interact with him. But some of the most important players are going to meet with him. June 23rd, 2011, five-hour meeting took place between WikiLeaks publisher Julian Assange, who was under house arrest in the UK, and Google CEO Eric Schmidt. Also in attendance was Jared Cohen, former Secretary of State Advisor to Hillary Clinton. Um, also Scott Malcolmson, Director of Speech Writing for the Ambassador Susan Rice at the State Department. Um, and Lisa Shields, who was the Vice President of the Council on Foreign Relations. Just very aligned with Western hegemony, very in line with the CIA. Yeah. Um, anyway. And the, yeah, they'll just publish an article every week that's like, why Ukraine should join NATO? <laughs> yeah. No, why Finland should join NATO? Exactly. And... Why you should be afraid of North Korea. Anyway, so that's 2011 when Jared Cohen is running secret missions to the edge of Iran. Fred Burton, who was Stratford's vice president for intelligence and a former State Department official, described that behavior by Jared Cohen as follows. Google is doing the things the CIA cannot do. Cohen is going to get himself kidnapped or killed. Might be the best thing to happen to expose Google's covert role in fomenting uprisings, to be blunt. The U.S. government can then disavow knowledge, and then Google is left holding the shitbag. So essentially staying, if if Google is exposed to be doing this stuff, it can look like Google just did that on its own and not on the on behalf of the United States. Yeah, Whatever. that is funny. Yeah, Jared Cohen. When he's assassinated, it won't be he won't be celebrated as a political hero. He'll just be like, yeah. "Oh, that that guy Google. It's yeah. So weird that he director died. of Google ideas, which <laughs> then became Google Jigsaw. Where did he go? So um, we also know from WikiLeaks cables that Cohen, while he was working for the State Department, was in Afghanistan or was in Afghanistan, trying to convince <laughs> the four major <laughs> Afghan mobile companies to move their antennas onto U.S. military bases. In Lebanon, he covertly worked to establish, on behalf of the State Department, an anti-Hezbollah Shia think tank. And in London, he was offering Bollywood film executives funds to insert anti-extremist content into Bollywood films and promising to connect them to related networks in Hollywood. That would be so funny if they like took it very literally and they're like, so this song is called Don't Join ISIS. And they (laughs) just have everybody (laughs) dancing like... This song is called The CIA is here to protect you. (laughs) (laughs) So that's an excerpt from uh, Julian Assange's book. And he says, quote, that's the director of Google Ideas. Cohen, Jared Cohen, is effectively Google's director of regime change. So great example of how in bed Google is with the state. And honestly, in bed, I feel like is a phrase that doesn't even quite do it justice because that kind of paints the picture of two entities who like secretly get into bed together, but really those entities are like so intertwined that they're not in bed together. Like they are the same. I think it also comes from the philosophy people like Jared Cohen have where they're like, yeah, like we can harness all this data collection and manipulation and use it in a way to save the world. And this guy, yeah, he's like, they're like excited to run the simulation to see if they can get all the defectors in Syria. Like they're, they're like, dude, we could feel, we, they really think, they really think like, we could solve climate change. We could end wars. Like, yeah. They want to be the biggest, the top yeah. company. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it kind of shows like in order to become the monopoly, the biggest game in town, you do have to get in bed with the U.S. government as a U.S. corporation. And you have to be a little psychotic to believe that you <laughs> yeah. can solve these world problems. You're like, yeah. I, uh, <laughs> excuse me, uh, Mr. President, I have the solution <laughs> to the problem in Syria. Like, yeah. you have to be, no one thought of that. Um, but what you were talking about just now uh, with them meddling in Syria, this was happening in 2012 when... Uh, Google was literally helping the U.S. meddle in Syria. Um, obviously, 2012, we're in the middle of the United States intelligence community and the defense apparatus uh, waging this campaign to overthrow the Syrian government of, of Bashar al-Assad. Um, and then Google, coincidentally, was also trying to brainstorm ways of doing that. Um, and so Jigsaw, which used to be Google Ideas, but then rebranded to Google Jigsaw, was planning to put out information about the locations of officials who were loyal to the Syrian government on the TV networks in Syria. And so this was, you know, a way to help the opposition um, tactically by being like, hey, here are those people. Um, and then also in a propaganda vibes way, like as a nod of confidence to them to instill confidence yeah. in the opposition, Look which is coincidentally is. the side that the U.S. wanted to win. Yeah. They were an- the anti-government side. And then also the 
defector thing. Yeah. So Jared Cohen had a great idea to, you know, end the Syrian civil war. And he was like, I'm planning to launch a tool on Sunday that will publicly track and map defections in Syria. This is from an email that WikiLeaks made public in 2016. It was a 2012 email from Jared Cohen to Hillary Clinton's people. And so which parts of the government these defectors are coming from? Our logic behind this is that while many people are tracking the atrocities, nobody is visually representing and mapping the defectors, which we believe are important in encouraging more to defect. To me, it just sounds like a tool that would be useful for the people fighting these defectors. Like <laughs> Here they are. <laughs> maybe the reason no one thought of mapping the locations of defectors from the Syrian government was because the Syrian government might get their hands on that map. Yeah. So all of this to say is like when we think of Google, you don't want to just think of you know, Android or, or your Gmail app or a Google search, like Google is a major military contractor and a major intelligence contractor. Like it's literally an arm of the national security state. One of many arms, obviously. There's also Amazon. Yeah, <laughs> let's not forget Amazon um, and Oracle. There's also SpaceX, but uh, it's one of many arms. And again, it's like, you know, it's the privatization of this infrastructure. So instead of uh, the CIA doing it themselves, they now have Google doing it, but it's literally acting as if it's an arm of the CIA. Coincidentally, the CIA also wants to overthrow the Syrian government. Coincidentally, the CIA also wants to overthrow the Iranian government. <laughs> Coincidentally, the CIA also wants to have all this uh, satellite imaging of the entire world. So just imagine Sergey Brin rollerblading into Damascus, ready to overthrow Syria, and he just seduces Bashar al-Assad's <laughs> wife. <laughs> She is hot. She's super hot. <laughs> so the way Eric Schmidt put it was, what Lockheed Martin was to the 20th century, technology and cybersecurity companies like Google will be to the 21st. Mm -hmm. So like Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Boeing and General Dynamics, all of these uh, weapons manufacturers, you know, this is the military industrial complex where you have these companies whose business model literally is getting the United States government to be at war, who a majority of their profit every year comes from selling weapons to the US government. And sometimes it's allies, but the lion's share of it to the US government. So it's all about keeping the US at war and this is how we make money. So yeah, Jerry, uh, Eric Schmidt is pretty much right because now Google, a large portion of their annual revenue comes from selling not maybe not guns and tanks and drones, but selling cybersecurity technology. We take what Jared Cohen says with a grain of salt. Eric Schmidt. We, oh, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. We take what Eric Schmidt says with a grain of salt because it's like he's also trying to sell himself. But okay. So yeah, and then you also have um, Google, not only relationship with the feds, but also a relationship with a lot of cities. I mean, their campus is basically uh, has residential areas. So. Yeah, it's like a whole economy. Um, and then you also have Boston in 2014 chose Google to run the information in infrastructure for its 76,000 employees, like the city of Boston. So police officers, teachers, like all that information is uh, being run through Google servers. Um, they even migrated their old emails to the Google Cloud. New York City in 2016 chose Google to install and run free Wi-Fi stations across the city. Really? There's free Wi-Fi stations? This new Link NYC 5G kiosk was unveiled on West Burnside Avenue in the Bronx. It's similar to the smaller Link NYC kiosks you see around the city. You can make free phone calls, charge a device, and connect to Wi-Fi. Now the city plans to have all 2,000 5G kiosks in the ground by 2026. And that will bring the total Link NYC network to 4,000 locations citywide. They're also getting our tax dollars to right. mine our information and manipulate us. So there's like very, okay, vague kind of laws in the U.S. that ensure some kind of privacy, but it's like we're all, op when we're using Google, we're all opting in. You can opt out of search, um, opt out of certain tracking features, but you can't opt out all the way. Like you're basically volunteering to be part of the machine, like clicking. And right. when you think about it, we really should be getting a paycheck from Google yeah, for great. how much work we're doing for them. I call for a general Google strike. I'm like kidding. That would never last. Not using the internet. Yeah. So no, no. one would would just use it's TikTok. Impossible. Yeah. So yeah, and then um, even in the present day, you have a strong relationship between Google and the government. Um, 
with the geofencing controversy. Yeah, the geofencing. So there's something called reverse search warrants, which is like one of the more dire implications of having all this information being gathered from us and mined from every pore of our body by Google. Courts can basically ask Google for all the information, all the IPs, every user that's in an area where a crime is committed. Let's say you're riding your bike one day. It's a nice sunny day. You ride past a home that's later burglarized that day. Sorry, you're a suspect. I hope you really enjoyed burning those few calories that you did. I hope it was worth it. (laughs) I hope it was worth it, which this actually did happen to one guy. And I'm sure there are more people, more innocent people that are caught up in this kind of dragnet. So courts can subpoena Google for uh, a location or a geofence and then get all the users within this one location. And then they're added to a suspect pile. And it's very, it's a very inaccurate way of looking for a suspect. Like usually you want like hard evidence of somebody who was actually at a crime scene. But now if you're in the neighborhood, that could be a problem. And you have to imagine like the least technical people who don't realize that they're being tracked or realize why they're being brought into this dragnet. Yeah, and they shouldn't have to. Like you should have the freedom to fucking move. I mean, it's the most basic freedom tenant or freedom of movement. Yeah. And then there's also reverse search warrants where a court can ask not only a person in this location, but did a person in this location search how to burn a car? Mm -hmm. Um, Did they search for which countries don't have an extradition treaty for the U.S.? Right. Like that, that is a common search term when somebody's (laughs) about to commit a murder. And it's like, kind of like if it lines up. But usually reverse warrants, either location-based or search term-based, they often bring back too many suspects and will just delay any kind of search for somebody who might be actually dangerous. So Mm -hmm. a lot of people have been fighting these reverse search warrants, and there's still a lot of resistance to it within the courts. It's an interesting question. Like, should the police be able to identify you just because a crime occurred in your area? There's a debate going on about whether or not that is a effective method. But beyond whether or not it's effective, like it seems unconstitutional. And that's what lawyers are saying right now. Electronic Frontier Foundation recently filed two amicus briefs arguing that that's an unconstitutional search because unlike a traditional warrant, like you're not even a suspect. And it's not even like, oh, maybe your device was used by a suspect. It's literally like you do literally nothing. Yeah. Wrong Wrong place, place, wrong time. Wrong Wrong place, place. anytime. Yeah. Wrong zip code. Yeah. So those are very serious implications of what, you know, what the dating mining and the exploitative data practices when they work hand in hand with the government, what harm Google can do. Quoting from an EFF report, geofence warrants can and have been used in ways that impact fundamental rights, including free speech and freedom of association. For example, during the protests following the police shooting of Jacob Blake, the ATF used at least 12 geofence warrants to collect people's location data during protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin, one of which encompassed a third of a major public park for a two-hour window. Police also used a geofence warrant in Minneapolis around the time of the protests following the police killing of George Floyd. I mean, that is interesting that they're they're using it against protesters yeah. in, in Kenosha and in, in uh, Minneapolis. But it's also like, yeah, they're getting public parks. So you're going to have like a bunch of toddlers who, <laughs> who are just like busy on the swings that day yeah. or like suspects in burning well, a cop car. Hopefully I don't know. the toddlers don't have fucking phones. Yeah. And hopefully they're on the right side of history. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. that's um, how we'll find out. So these are geofence warrants, right? But there's probably more going on even behind the scenes that have nothing, like probably more to do with the feds than local police. So we know about this local police scandal, but it just shows that this is uh, information that Google has. So, okay, it's about the police requesting access to the information Google has. That's an issue. But I think the even bigger and broader issue is it's this is the information that Google has. Who cares if the police request it or not? Google itself has it. And based on the relationship Google has with the state, that means the CIA has it. Um, I guess I want to mention the Obama thing. So, of course, we know that there was a revolving door between Google and and the government. But 
under Obama, it was like the golden age of swinging that door from Google to the White House. Mm. And uh, from 2008, oh, fuck, sorry. From 2008 to 2016, basically almost 200 government employees went to Google and 60 Google executives went to the government. And around 22 White House employees went to Google and 21 went from Google to the White House. So that door was swinging. There wasn't even a door. There wasn't. There (laughs) There was an open archway. (laughs) Yeah. It is interesting that the Council on Foreign Relations, who we just uh, mentioned, did just put out an article that China is responsible for the fentanyl crisis, which was also a point that Tucker Carlson made. (laughs) Wow. Is to blame. Yeah. China's all basically... All, the root of all our problems is number one, our mom, but number two, <laughs> Russia China. and China. Russia and China, but Russia, like China, less North Russia. Korea, yeah. A lot of people are obsessed with Russia, but really the security state is more worried about China. It depends on which faction. I feel like the Democrat, quote unquote, Democratic Party faction, like the National Democratic Institute, which is a Council on Foreign Relations affiliate, more obsessed with Russia. And then you have the Heritage Foundation and the more, quote unquote, right wing, even though we see both of both parties as right wing, but the even more right wing side is definitely more focused on China. Whoever you are focused on, it's definitely not Google and it's definitely not the United States. Yeah. And I think Google is like aware of how how conscious we are of how it's exploiting our data. They actually at one point, Sergey Brin was like, uh, we got to stop the the ticker of numbers that shows how many searches there were because it just like <laughs> it looks so bad. We, it just makes like, us look too powerful. It makes us look way too powerful. And the thing with surveillance capitalism, just one point I think we need to make is that, yeah, what is Google really making? Is it like a productive part of the economy or is it totally extractive? Like they're just taking our data. We are the productive part of it. We are the clicking. We are teaching the algorithm every day, day in, day out. I am teaching an algorithm. I might be unemployed right now, but but I'm, I'm working for Google. <laughs> I am a Google employee. God It'd be funny it. to be like at a party and someone's like, oh, what do you do? I work for Google. Yeah, <laughs> I work for Google. <laughs> and just walk oh, what's away. What's the cafeteria like? <laughs> I have no idea. I actually <laughs> did meet someone at a party yesterday who, or Friday, two days ago, who mentioned he was working for Google. And then like I kind of tried to dig deeper. I was like, oh, what do you do? What do you do? And then ended, it turns out like he, I mean, he does technically work for Google, but he definitely tried to be vague in the beginning to make it sound like he did something more impressive because he works for Google's event coordination services. <laughs> He's a waiter for Google parties, oh. which is like, who gives a fuck? Go get your bag. But it was just funny how he was cagey about that information in the beginning. I provide nourishment. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I, coordinate, I coordinate I coordinate the experience. nutritional enrichment. For... You got all the bullet points of his resume before <laughs> you're like, that sounds like waiter. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yeah, I, I work for their events division. I was like, okay. How far? <laughs> and also, it, we need to mention this, that in the EU, there's a thousand more privacy protections that Google is actually happy to pay EU countries. Every time they get a penalty, they pay up, they cough it up, mm-hmm. they they pout a little bit. But they pay as as much in penalties as they do in taxes in the EU. Like they don't, mm. they do not give a fuck. They're like, no. give us the privacy laws, give uh, send us to court. We don't give a shit. We can pay for it. But in the U.S., they're just allowed to do it and yeah. get away with it because the government is ultimately going to exploit that information too. Yeah, the government is literally depend like the machine, the US machine runs on these tech companies. It's a mutually beneficial relationship um, benefiting everyone but the taxpayer basically. Well, I think that's a good place to leave off. I came from a luncheon and uh, we had a discussion. We said, or the conclusion was, uh, we can address the issues which we have to confront in the world, not just in a rational way. The world in some way has to digest this tremendous uh, speed of change, complexity of change, which creates an emotional turmoil. So we have to respond much more also with values and not 
just with rational answers. And what what would be your values? Um, what, what are your driving values? Not having been in Davos in years or so, I'm like kind of even confused in a good way. Uh, you know, because the, all these you know business executives and CEOs and everybody, everybody's wondering, well, how are you know how are people going to find purpose? And what about all these you know refugees? What about income inequality? I kind of feel like I'm at Burning Man, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, almost, except we're all wearing clothes.